If you ask him to play D&D with us, he might... He... Oh my goodness, let's do it. Okay, honestly though, like, our D&D game is in between my notes. That's why I have to flip so many pages. <laughs> because, like, we start D&D and this, this book is here and I would open it up and I'm like, ah, so if I start talking about... And then C.S. Lewis grabbed an amulet and <laughs> all these statues came to life and tried to kill him. And Galbat... Oops, sorry, that's not what we're talking about. Uh-huh. That was an inside joke, listeners. I'm sorry. You weren't on the inside of that, but we play D&D, too. I mean, in quarantine, you know. all jokes are inside jokes. <laughs> Clever. We're so funny. Gosh. <laughs> I didn't think I was funny, but now I know I am. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Chronically Narnia, uh, the podcast in which we discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter and occasionally have a wrap-up episode just to talk about things and stuff. Kristen, is this is this a, a special bonus wrap-up episode? It is a bonus wrap-up episode. Wow. What? Do you, do you think that because it's book two, you're only going to get one wrap-up episode? No. You get two. We did these episodes, we did these books in the wrong order, so we got to make up for it somehow. So is that how it's going to work from now on? Like for book two, we do two wrap-ups. For book three, we do three wrap-ups and so on and so forth. I'm not promising anything, uh-huh. but it is an idea. <laughs> so uh, I am here to introduce the podcast and also, of course, myself, the Echo of Aslan's Roar, also known as Kristen, and my co-host. I'm the fifth throne at Care Paravel, also known as Chris. You really, you really gonna do this right now? Do what? <laughs> like, just ripping straight from Nathan's rating system? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we're having a wrap-up episode. Can we do that without a guest, Chris? Uh, I don't think we can. We shouldn't. We, we never should. Yeah, we shouldn't do this podcast without a guest ever. <laughs> I mean, that's also a valid point. <laughs> we need people to prop us up. Would you like to introduce our guest? Uh, sure. Coming from the distant uh, land that's you know adjacent to Sparum, uh, uh, called Florida, uh, this is our guest, who is... Edmund's Belt Buckle. But only from that first moment. It turns out he took a bath in between, you know, chapters, and I have been sitting on the hamper, lonely and discarded for most of the story. Also known as Christina! Wow, okay. Christina, <laughs> welcome! I have been welcomed! Welcome aboard to our podcast. Do I want to no, be you, aboard, you though? Can't, you can't say welcome aboard until we're doing Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have so much nautical fun with that one, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, you are. <laughs> you are. Well, Christina, yes, you and I have discussed many times uh, potentially trying to put some effort into creating a podcast of our own, um, and you know that's not a thing we've ever done. Yeah, but you're here, and we're making a podcast together right now, which means that we are fulfilling what we were trying to do before. You're succeeding, so and we're hard. succeeding so hard right Look now. Look at us doing at the thing. We, we've yeah, arrived. This is when your friendship arrives. Just saying. Yep. You make a podcast. It really it is. is. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna you gonna make it through this? No, one? we just we have three friends. Like <laughs> the, the the people that have come and joined us on our podcast. Yeah. 
If you want to be our friend, you must be on our podcast. Sounds we like make it. a new friend about every six months or so. Yeah, just about every six months. Hey, look, a new person. Cool. So bef- before we get started here, uh, we'll ask you, Christina, the same question we ask all of our guests on this uh, show, you know, the dozens that we've had. Uh, what is your background and experience with Narnia? You know, this movie came out in a the theater once, and my family went and saw it, and I watched it. That was Narnia. It was a good movie okay. that day. I remember I had popcorn, it was the AMC theater, and then afterward we walked over to Walmart. Yeah. So, Okay. Narnia. So you didn't get, you did not get introduced to the books before the Nope. Films. Oh, In fact, I, I okay. chose to read this book for the very first time at the tender age of 31 years old. And it was an audiobook. I mean, I listened nice. to it as I played Minecraft. So I want you to know I'm an expert on this topic. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah. So when you when you were uh, a wee youngin uh, growing up, what uh, what was your you know book of choice? Like, what were you into? <laughs> I wasn't a reader. I feel like I should point that out. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, oddly enough, I read the dictionary as a kid. And I was told. I was always told to. It do was that. really fun. It never actually. Like, there's happened. a lot of great words. Mm-hmm. And then, like, we owned the entire encyclopedia series. Totally got through half of that. Like, we, my sister and I would read mm-hmm. through it, and we'd find the most obscure stuff in the world. You know, and one of my favorite shows to watch growing up was Discovery Wild at 8 p.m. on the Discovery Channel, and they had all the little animals on it and stuff. You know, we were those kids. Nice. See, that doesn't surprise me, like, you reading the dictionary. Like, that's something I would expect your sister to do. Like, that wasn't... I think that's maybe me. some of the reason why I did it. Like, she was so smart, and I was like, oh my goodness, I need more words, otherwise I can't keep up with the brain. Which, you laugh, but that was a nickname my sister was called. Like, my mom would be like, here comes the brain, and I'd be like, where are you getting that from? And as a kid, I'd be watching Pinky and the Brain on TV, and I'd be like, wait a minute. If my sister's called the brain... <laughs> And that's when I started reading a dictionary. <laughs> gotcha. So did you have any, like, you know, loves in general of, like, franchises? Like, were you, like, a Harry Potter fan? Um, or, like, a... Book-wise, I'm guessing like... we're sticking with books. I mean... Yeah, anything. I mean, go, go for go it. For, I mean, for books, as a kid, I loved the Sherlock Holmes series. Okay. I did read Harry Potter, cool, cool. just the first one, and it was read to me. And I should say that, too. My sister read the Sherlock Holmes series to me and I would sit there and I ate every mm-hmm. word of it up so if a book was read to me I'd read it they can't see my air quotes but <laughs> pretend. when I say read there's always air quotes going on I've never actually read a book <laughs> I've always had them read you've, to you've me admitting on this podcast you've never read a book and you're over th- well I mean I have read books but not fiction books I should say I just, I don't get into fiction. Like, I read my grammar books from college, like, three or four times. Oh, okay. But, okay. <laughs> hand me a, a fiction, I'm like, oh my, really, I gotta get through this? I mean, where's the spark notes? All right. Well, you're gonna bring an interesting perspective to this literature podcast. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I know, and that's when your audiences, they're, like, leaving. Like, you can see the numbers going down. They're like, who is this guest? What, what does she know? Nothing. <laughs> Okay, so um, I really don't know how we're starting this one because I feel like uh, our our last wrap episode we did the whole thing where we read through our summaries of the book and and all that kind of stuff, uh, and I think we don't need to do overkill and do that again. Oh, please don't. However, uh, 
I have late submissions to my please give me a five sentence summary request that I put out. Sure. So I could read a couple of those. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and and start off with that. All right. Um, the request text message went out saying, can you give me a five sentence hard limit summary of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? One of the received summaries is as follows. First and best known of seven fantasy novels for children by C.S. Lewis, published around 1950 and still very popular today. One of his later works was set at an earlier chronology, moving Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Volume 2. Set mostly in Narnia, a land of talking animals and mythical creatures, ruled first by an evil witch, but ultimately by Aslan, a type of Christ who gives his life for one of the least deserving children, later rises from the dead, dethrones the witch, and crowns the children kings and queens of Narnia. Written for Lewis's goddaughter, the story captures the hearts and minds of children of all ages, including mine. Um, that one was from Charles. Then we have one that was sent to me on Monday after I had requested it on Thursday uh-huh. that said, sorry, didn't send you a thing, facepalm. I said, no worries. The response was, it was going to start with something like, through a series of unfortunate events for children, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Uh-huh. That one is from Stephen. Uh-huh. So that's a thing. Sorry about the sorry about the wait. Got this in the middle of a meeting and totally spaced on it. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is a whimsical tale of the positive transformation and coming of age of the Pevensey children. They grow from slight dysfunction and general ill will towards each other to acceptance and understanding through their experiences in Narnia, a magical land entered by way of a magical wardrobe. They interact with all kinds of magical characters, the two most influential being Aslan the Lion and the White Witch, the embodiment of good and evil, respectively. Through these interactions, the children learn the power of family, to respect each other, and to become selfless. Okay. Who is that by? That is from Stephen, not Steve, but from Stephen in Colorado or Oklahoma. Oh, that's Stephen. Wherever he moved to recently. Okay, that one. Cool, cool. Um, so before we kick off, I, I for this episode, I did come up with a five-word summary of the book. Five-word summary. Wait, I bet wait, that wait. it involves... Well, wait, the, wait, wait. Can I, can I just guess three of the words? You should write it down. Okay. And then... And then, after, then I'll say it, and then I'll read what you wrote down and see how close you got. So write down what you think I'm going to say. This is thrilling radio. This is. What are you talking about? I'm on the edge of my seat. You'll pay for the whole seat, but you only need the edge. Okay. <laughs> okay, you good? Ready. All right. So my five-word summary of this book is as follows. Children. Wardrobe. Witch. Lion. Wardrobe. You put wardrobe twice. Yes. That was artistic and beautiful. Children, wardrobe, witch, lion, wardrobe. There you go. What did you have? I wrote all of those words. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote lion, witch, wardrobe, magic, children. So I put magic in there. I put, first I put just the title of the book, the lion, witch, and wardrobe, which would be five words. It would be. So a truncated form, the lion, witch, and Uh wardrobe. 
So, uh, so that's the book. Uh, I mean, we've talked about it at length over the past 18 odd episodes. So, Christina, what, uh, since you read this for the first time, it, like you said, the, the tender age of 31, what are your thoughts? Well, <laughs> gonna have to level with you. Started out, and I was like, man, this, this narrative is hurting me as much as the Twilight series. And <laughs> wow. I, I feel like I have to explain that's that. That's a level. Yeah, I worked in a library, <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, but he's into this Twilight series, and, you know, I, I want to be want to be with it i want to know what everyone likes i may not like it but i want to know about it like i've researched uh-huh. all the harry potter books i know all, the whole plot i got it i just haven't read them so i went into you know the back into the kids section i open up twilight and i read the first paragraph and closed the book and said i can't this physically hurts me they are endlessly entertaining though like <laughs> i rec- i recommend everybody read them just for the sheer like mockery oh. value yeah, yeah. No, it, they're great you should never read something that you don't want to read like it's <laughs> that is why people don't read uh-huh. because they force themselves to read things that they don't enjoy and they're like well reading is not a good time it is a chore yeah exactly uh, i mean i'm not i, so I don't want to say yeah. that it was a horrible book because i can understand where the appeal is for certain people but going through the whole story and i'm trying to focus on the fiction aspect of it before i jump into any other ideas it was <laughs> painfully predictable for me. It was two-dimensional. The characters were very flat. There wasn't much depth to them. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I was playing Minecraft at the same time. So it could just be, you know, creepers are very entertaining as you're running from them. <laughs> but there were whole parts of the book where, I'll be honest with you, I felt like nothing happened at all. And if it hadn't been for Minecraft, I'm not sure I could have continued through that moment. I'm certain I would have fallen asleep, which has become something mm-hmm. I do now when I'm super bored in a conversation. I, I begin to nod off, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm becoming wow. my mother. But, <laughs> y- you know, I mean, there's not a lot to say about the book. Here I was thinking, well, this mo- there's got to be something amazing about this book, because so many people talk about how great it is, you know, mm-hmm. especially within the Christian sphere. And then I'm sitting here going... Hmm. I mean, I mean, I'm trying to find a nice way to say these people might might be on something, and that's why this is a much more enjoyable book. I'm trying not to bump up the rating of your podcast. (laughs) You're fine. Sorry. I mean, just throwing it out there, but we did spend around 16 hours talking about the book, so, I mean... (laughs) And we decided that we wasted our time. <laughs> Never a waste. Uh, I'm sure you learned something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We learned that I don't want to finish this series. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's there's no wrong answer to this question, but did you also uh, listen through our episodes on The Magician's Nephew? Wow, you look at that squirrel outside my window. That thing looks amazing. Beautiful, too. You should... If you turn the camera, we might be able to see it. Um, you know my situation, though. Like, if I move the camera, I'll have to move with it, and then I won't be in front of the microphone. Remember? We talked about this. Yeah. We had a whole no. two we minutes did. where we had to set up. And so, oh, there he goes. He's gone. Oh, man. So let's continue oh, this podcast man. as we talk about, you know, the depth uh-huh. of this story. <laughs> so I'm taking that as a no. Oh, beautiful squirrel. <laughs> okay. So that being said, Kristen. Yes take us off all right so we have some discussion points we what do we're going to talk about we we do so um 
We wanted to kind of talk specifically about just like your engagement with this text, like as far as like, yes, we talked about this is the first time that you've read it and your kind of take on it. Were you culturally aware of this book prior? Like before the movie, were you aware of it? Is the movie your only interaction with it? I have to be honest, before the movie came out, no. I don't think I really heard much about this book or engaged this book at all. Like, I may have seen it on a bookshelf and it wouldn't have caught my attention because it's, again, I wasn't a huge fiction reader as a kid. I mean, I would watch my cartoons, but I was more into what's my sister looking into, what's she researching, and like I said, she is like an IQ of 300, super intelligent individual. I'd rather sit there and listen to her read an instruction manual before I would pick up something like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, And that's saying something, because y'all know I couldn't get through no instruction manual either. Like, so, <laughs> I mean, once the movie came out, I mean, I, I did my research to understand why it was culturally a deal, because that's just what I do. I'm like, oh, everybody loves this. And I can't even really remember when that movie came out, but I want to say it was closer to when I was in college, like high school or college age. Yes. The movie for The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe came out uh, December 5th, 2005. Ah, so yeah, I was so. in high school. Life was good. I was 16-ish. Yep. So That's... You're one of those people that had a good time in high school. Wow. Well, <laughs> learning so much. I, mean, I, I went to a... <laughs> this is going to totally make it sound like, don't you read fiction? I Let me go back. I did read plays in high school. I went to a performing <laughs> arts school. So... Yeah, and for me, mm-hmm. engaging any kind of movie and stuff became about analyzing how I would have done it and all that good jazz that actors do. You're just like, ah, oh, their acting was well, and this story makes sense. I see how this, you know, the, the allegory they're trying to paint here and what they're trying to do. But again, I was also 16, so what do you want from a 16-year-old who's in drama school? Think about it. <laughs> Think about it. You know, really, what assessment had I made? And yeah, when I went to college as you know i went to a christian university it would have been a big deal there i was like this is such a great book and young people should read it i'm like okay that's cool so i knew about it in that context but i was never compelled to actually read the book and i just assumed it was as good as the movie otherwise why did they make a movie how wrong i was Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm so sorry if someone loves this book good on you no that's a it's it, it is it is very impressive that like you weren't culturally aware of this like growing up in the south uh I mean, I, I didn't really grow up in in any kind of like church or Christian environment per se. Like, I I had a vague awareness of it. Uh, as I think people talked about, Kristen, I think you'd have more. I don't know. When you were growing up as a kid in the church, was this a, I, other than the fact that this is your father's favorite book, uh, and he insisted that you you well, read them. Dawn Treader specifically, Voyage yeah. of the Dawn Treader was his favorite book in the series, yes. and they were books that he still loves to this day um outside of that though was this something that was like in the zeitgeist you were in like was there i feel like it was the kind of thing that was referenced uh-huh. but i watched like the the old bbc films of it when i was a kid like i would watch those at tyler brown's house mm-hmm. and i don't i i've probably watched a like all of them a couple of times and like that really old animated Hobbit movie. Yeah, that one was weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people, and I'm I'm curious um, for your take on it, Christina. A lot of people have kind of equivalated 
like these pedestals that they put Narnia and like Middle Earth from from the Lord of the Rings series on. They take these two series which are written with completely different intentions by completely different authors with completely different like styles. Yeah. And audiences. But people will very frequently put both of these up on pedestals next to each other as holding them of equal value and respect. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, to address your shock that you're surprised first that I'm in the South and never really <laughs> heard about it. I am from Polk County. I feel like that has to be addressed. <laughs> so uh, how much do you think people around me have read? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not personal. I mean, half these people haven't even read their Bibles, let alone going to pick up. Wow. I'm, I'm just throwing calling out, them like it is. Throw, throwing some, I'm just saying. Throwing some facts out. Some facts out. So you have this this prominent Christian book, supposedly. And yeah, Lord of the Rings, I'll be honest with you, never really popped up in my youth either. Harry Potter was a big deal. That I remember hearing about. That was a big deal. Yeah. Way more than Lord of the Rings would have been or The Hobbit. No one my age would have been talking about that. No one in Polk County would have been talking about that. And half the reason Harry Potter became such a deal outside of my teacher reading it in my class was because it became a cultural taboo. Like, oh, witches, don't read a witch book. And that was that was most of the experience. And I think there's a part of me that was like, I just want to get this book because they tell me I can't have it. And <laughs> at the time, my mother wasn't very religious. And she's like, of course you can have this book. And I got it. I didn't read it. I just owned it, and I felt cool. <laughs> book. Like, I was one of those rebel kids with a Harry Potter book. So <laughs> the idea that people put it on this pedestal, like I said, now that I've done some research on it, I can explain to you why I think that was done, per se. And I think it's it's worth noting. But at the time, if I'm assessing it, why did I think it wasn't? I think it's really just, for me, it wasn't because nobody around me was into it. For you, it probably was. Because people made a certain connection with the book that was very personal, and it built identity, and it worked. It's kind of like when people are like, I'm totally into Harry Potter when they're not. It's There's a cultural identity that goes with saying, I'm in the Slytherin house. I'm in this, that, the other. I do this. I do that. You get a community. And I think that is more or less what was marketed when it was like, look at this book writ by, written by this great Christian apologeticist, you know, C.S. Lewis. You gotta read this book. And it was given to Christian kids, and it's like, of course we love it. It's the thing we can love. It's the thing we engage. And it's really hard to disapprove of a community-binding book. Uh-huh. Wow. So that, well, that's, well said. Yeah. That's my take on it. That's why I think it got as big as it did. It's not because the book's good. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm sorry. It's, no, it's, we've said that on this podcast many times. Uh, yeah, I, just, I know there's somebody who's part. listening who really does like love the book. I feel like they're out there. And it's like, I want to be in your corner too, man. I get it. You love this book and you love it for all the reasons you do. And it's not just because it's culturally relevant or whatever. You probably are just so into that story, man. And yeah. that's cool because it's okay to be wrong. And I support you. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so mean. I I do support you in a way. I mean, you are wrong though. So it's all good. Don't don't apologize. Objectively. Okay. Objectively. Yeah. You are I feel like I feel like what we need is we need the perspective of somebody who's like actively in the church now and has like children that are like nine or ten, just so we can pick their brain and be like, what is the thing in you know Christian kids' culture now? Like what? Because I have no idea. Yeah, I like, have no idea. I, I, like. I grew up and it was like Adventures in Odyssey uh-huh. and which is a great radio series. 
it is a great radio series. Like, so, and I and it holds up too. Like, for the most part. I mean, there are are. Uh, so anyway, let's let's tackle some themes here. That's that, that's why we're here. We're discussing themes uh, within the storyline and without. I guess, uh, Christina, do you have anything that you wanted like you, you, you're, you you're said that about? you did research? I yes. did. So like my notes on the story go one, two, three, four page no three pages of notes from the book itself. We're not okay. going to touch all that though because I thought that was boring once I did it. And I'm going to focus on something you touched on lightly in your last podcast. You touched it, and then you ran away. And I was like, what? And then you even mentioned my name. And I was like, go back. Go back! I did listen to that podcast, though. So, But we needed... I, I knew that it was something we were going to talk about. So I didn't so, want yeah. to, like, dive into it with Nathan, who didn't have that on his 17-point list. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, I, I like to get more perspectives. You guys know this. I'm like... <laughs> I'll think about stuff. That's fun. I could think. Not very well, but, you know. Uh, yeah, at least you guys trying. were talking about how, like, when the author writes something and then it gets interpreted by the audience and there's only so much. The term you're looking for is the death of the author. It didn't mm-hmm. use it, but now I'm going to throw it out here. And I feel like as I read the book, I got to the end. I was immediately like, I don't know what's going on in this book that makes it so awful for me. And I had to know why it was so awful because there, there's a reason. There's a reason it's not clicking. I can't just say, it's two-dimensional characters. That's not a that's not a reason. Why? And I did my research, and I realized, after researching C.S. Lewis more, somebody I also didn't really care to know much about until two days ago, that the author, at no point in the story, allowed himself to die. And there's no room for external inter- interpretation, I should say. Yeah. And I wanted to explore that concept with you and see if you kind of agree with me and if your listeners kind of agree with me. Or am I just crazy? And they can just say it, too. I don't mind. Call me crazy. Disagree with me. Nothing <laughs> would please me more. So Chris knows well my opinions on this, so I'm going to let Chris go ahead and express his first, and then I'll... Uh-huh. I'll ramp up. I, I will. I won't talk about <laughs> Kristen's opinions. Uh, you know, I, I, totally, I totally agree with that as far as this book goes, uh, where... I mean, that's kind of the situation where you have uh, Lewis himself being basically the omniscient narrator. Like, and let's... popping his head in and being like, the seagulls! <laughs> Do you remember? Oh my god, can we just talk yeah. about the moment he switched to second person in the story and I was like, stop that! Stop that! Do not talk to the reader! What are you doing? What you doing? If you yeah, ain't gonna there's... do that through the whole book, don't you stop and do that now! I couldn't handle it. It drove me nuts! Sorry, continue. Yeah, there's there's several of these moments in uh, Magician's Nephew and Chronically, uh, Chronically Narnia. Yeah. Uh, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I'm not sure if they're in other books because I haven't read them yet. But, uh, yeah, there's these a lot of fourth wall breaking moments where he just pops in and is like, well, let me give my thoughts on the situation. And, oh, if you could have known what happened there, oh, I'm sure you would have liked that. And like, like these really weird little moments where it's happened. like, <laughs> this is how you write a book. Where where he's coming in and being like, oh, I have knowledge that you don't. Tee hee hee. And, and it, <laughs> it further removes the reader from the story. Yeah. Like, and so no, I, I totally agree that he doesn't uh, ever step back. And I mean, I in general, I don't like. I don't know. I, I, I guess I I have to specify and say that kind of omniscient narration because I think an omniscient like out there narrator can be done okay in general i don't like the style of it 
And so you would be right uh, in your I've claim that a narrator would be great. My argument with his book is the author never died. And I think a lot of writers forget uh -huh. that the most important character in your book is not your protagonist or antagonist, any of those people. It's your narrator. They're the most important character. They're the one that's going to take you through it. It's important to know that when a character does break the fourth wall, they can interact with the narrator. That, that's really what it is. They can interact with the, the reader or the listener in a movie, but the one person they actually can't get to is supposed to be the author. If in any way you feel yeah. like the author is directly putting themselves in the way that C.S. Lewis did at some of these points in the book, you're not allowing mm -hmm. your readers to engage with your characters or even with your narrator. I don't actually have a problem with a narrator turning to you and being like a 1950s movie commercial and being like, hey, mom. What are you going to make for dinner? Like, that's acceptable and fine. That's the narrator. <laughs> that's not the, the commercial writer who's talking to me. Uh -huh. But C.S. Lewis comes in at these moments, and I know I marked him. I wasn't going to go back through these pages, which I can't even remember where it is because it just I didn't really want to talk about it as much. Uh -huh. you know what? I'm not going to look it up because you just read the book <laughs> yourselves, everyone. Yeah. But he turns to the actual reader and begins to persuade the reader and talk to the reader and like manipulating their opinions on things and it's and he's defaulting to his style of writing which is apologetic yes which is argumentative writing and con and it's intended to convince people and that's exactly what he's doing he's falling into that where he's just like yes if you would have seen this you would have known if this was something you know as you know, you should never close yourself in a wardrobe. Like okay, that, that that drove me nuts too. I was angry. That was like he kept talking about this closing. It sounds like was this important? Does the the door closing? Like, did you guys ever watch Indian in the Cupboard? Yes. Yes, and there was a sequel where the kid was trying to figure out if it was the key or if it was the actual thing it was locking was there people a in. Like. The yeah, there was a there sequel. Was. Oh. There was a directivity of sequel. My teacher read that book to me in second grade. Ha. No. <laughs> see, I did read some books. No, I didn't. I, again, do you guys see my air quotes? They yeah. can. Yep. You know. I mean, if I remember but, correctly, I think in the book it was the key. but It I, was. Yeah. It turned out to be the key because then the boy put himself into a uh, dressing chest. What is it? In a blanket chest where you put blankets in. He locked himself in, and then he teleported to a Native American village as a teepee, I think. And... <laughs> Got weird. It, the village was being ransacked at the time, and they were burning stuff down and, like, killing people, and he was witnessing it. It was really well done, actually. I know it's weird, but it was one of those moments where you're like, wow, we did not treat Native Americans very well. And as a kid in second grade, you have to understand, that was a big thought. That was a big thought for second grade. Yeah. But for him, there's just moments, and I, I don't even mind so much as, like, explaining what the horse would feel like with the, the lion riding on the back of the lions like not riding on the back of a horse because lions aren't horses and stuff and i'm cool <laughs> with that but like you said there was an apologetic tone which is important to know i don't know if i want to dive into all of that right now or do we i want to work my way into it i don't know how podcasts work exactly <laughs> well while we're on the subject of the narrator you've get you've inspired yes. me to take these moments in future books if they occur and to um try to re-envision the narrator as an unreliable narrator okay and see what these shifts in tone where he just directly addresses the audience like create the character of the narrator as uh -huh. an unreliable narrator and be like here are all of the examples of why we can't trust him because uh -huh. i don't know while i i don't love unreliable narrators i really do like 
the challenge of like questioning whether an, a narrator is reliable and why we should rely on them. And I, I've all I don't know. I've always really liked that kind of tone setting. So you've you've offered me a challenge. Yeah. To to change well, that would the tone. Be interesting. Well, because like one thing the narrator says in this book is first the children thought something and I agreed with them. Like he mentions, I agree with them. If he's being unreliable, I mean, then he's just flat out lying now to yeah. his readers. <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry. It seems like you, I, I, seems like you wanna you want to go more into that. I want to launch off, but I know I have this <laughs> this tendency to start rambling, so I'm trying to like reel it in. If we're talking about the narrator, stay on narrator. But let me tell you this huge, long, like, eight-page report I wrote about this man's life and how the book is just totally an allegory for his life. Are you ready to go? Okay. Ready. Let's go. Ready? Re- okay. Are we just, are we gonna, what about your points? I thought you had points. Huh? No, 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 no. No. My, I have a stack of flashcards that are if we lose track of conversation or if we just get oh. stuck. These are me bringing us back and uh-huh. being like, hey, look. Christina, it's Turkish Delights. Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> I could talk about that for a while. And I talked to my friend from the Netherlands about it, too. It was great. Anyway, put on your seatbelts, children. I'm about to ramble for a really long okay. period of time. And it's not going to be very good rambling because y'all know I'm me. I'm buckling up. Yeah. I, I'm literally a rambler, listeners. I'm sorry. It's what I do. I'm, if, if I'm writing, my thoughts are more concise. But my mouth is running. So you're just going to have to be, like, tongue-lashed for a while. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Upon reading this book and absolutely hating it, I told you I did some research, and I watched this delightful documentary from Timeline called Narnia's Lost Poet, because I realized I knew nothing about C.S. Lewis, and, like I said, something was wrong with the book. After watching this documentary, I realized the thing wrong with the book was, of course, the narrator. C.S. Lewis really wanted to be the narrator, which, I'm sorry, honey boo, you can't do. You gotta make an actual narrator character. And so the way his life was, he worked it deeply into these trilogies that he made, the whole Narnia series. He took pretty much the trauma of his entire life and shoved it into a 10-year writing session for these kids' books, which is interesting Uh that he, of of course, went in that venue, but it's not when you consider his whole life. It totally made sense for him to go there. When you read these books, it's like going to a movie with like the playwright or whatever the guy wrote the play and he's just like you know what i meant for right here let me tell you about what was going on right here and you just want to look at him go and say dude shut up i'm watching the film just let me watch (laughs) and c.s lewis is like i'm gonna let you watch but you know i just want to point out you know really clearly i love jesus (laughs) I, i didn't doubt that man i didn't doubt that you know aslan's jesus right i've been told if you look really closely, you can see it's an allegory. Will you shut up! I just, I can't stand it. <laughs> that, like, the entire time I felt like C.S. Lewis was sitting here whispering in my ear. And it's uncomfortable because his breath is hot and smells like onions. So, <laughs> um, he was born into a very liberal family. Or so he says. You know, he was able to read anything he wanted to read. He could engage in anything he wanted to engage in. Good times. The year was 1898 when he and his brother came up with like this fantasy game they would play. And you'll never guess what was a part of this fantasy game. Take a guess. Was there a, was there a fawn? Was there a magical <gasps> land? Was there winter and no Christmas? Okay, there wasn't a winter and, and no Christmas. That, that wasn't talked about. But 
he did have like talking animals and they had this biscuit tin that they glued moss to and stuff and they made like this little forest it was super cute i was like oh little boy is playing with little forest magic forest place do you know c.s lewis's favorite childhood book no i don't squirrel nutkin (laughs) do we have background information on this book Oh, I should have looked that up. Squirrel Nutkin, you've seen it. I knew more about this book, I'll be honest with you, than I knew about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because I've seen this book at my grandma's house. Like, it's yeah. about a squirrel. Now, I don't know anything else about it, but it's about a squirrel, which was... Apparently a very old book, too. <laughs> yeah, and it's like this brown It squirrel. was written by Beatrix Potter, who wrote, like, the uh, Peter Cottontail books. Yes. And it's the tale of Squirrel Nutkin. According to the Wikipedia article, it was uh, published in 1903, and the story is about an impertinent red squirrel named Nutkin and his narrow escape from an owl called Old Brown. That that's it. That's the summary okay. on Wikipedia. Cool. <laughs> and see, now me mentioning a squirrel outside my window totally makes sense. Y'all thought I was off track. I'm always off track. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. You're coming back to it. I came back around. Well. This was, I mean, he had a very involved fantasy play world that he had going on in his head. But in 1908, his mother died. And it happened, I think, when he was away at school. And he didn't get to say goodbye because his mom died. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's awful. I mean, that's horrible. And I'm assuming he loved his mom because most people do. And do Mm -hmm. you know how his dad decided to cope with this loss? Sending his kid away to boarding school. <laughs> and you know who hated school? C.S. Lewis. Wouldn't you, though? Like, he wanted to be yeah. home. And he sucked at sports because he thought his thumbs didn't work right. And if your thumbs don't work <laughs> right, you're not going to be on the sports team. And if you're not on the sports team, what are you? Okay, your, your, your listeners can't see it, but I have, like, the L <laughs> on my forehead. That means loser. You're kind of a loser. No offense to him. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. I, I knew it was only a matter of time until we worked Smash Mouth into this podcast somehow. Yeah, well, let me tell you, all that glitters wasn't gold for C.S. Lewis because he went on to engage in very feminine-esque studies. He enjoyed reading about mythology and studying English and reading his stuff. I mean, he was in England, and he hated that he couldn't speak English at first. Like, he thought it was just a horrible language at first. Like, who wouldn't? You, you were sent to a boarding school in another, another language. I mean, it's awful. But, you know, that's what he did. Him his little books. Him his little fantasies. And, like, that probably did not ingratiate him to his peers. I'm just assuming he struggled. I mean, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming he did. As someone who tried to learn Elvish in high school, it yeah, I mean you, you get a you get a small group of friends who also like to, to try to learn Elvish, uh-huh. but you know, and then you create a writing circle and you call yourselves the what? The Inklings. Yeah. The Inklings. Uh-huh. I haven't gotten there. <laughs> we haven't. Yet, though. We're, we're working, working up. up to that. I hope I'm not boring your mm-hmm. listeners by repeating stuff you've already talked about. No, okay. no. we appreciate background information. Yeah, I don't think I really don't think much of this we've actually talked about. Steve talked about it in the in the recap uh, a little bit about his boarding school experience, but did not talk about his his mother or any See, of that. See, this is why yeah. I like Steve. Like he doesn't know him, but we're friends already. You know, <laughs> vicariously through you. Y'all would be. Yeah, we would. I think we'd be great friends. When are you going to introduce us? Just saying. <laughs> when he gets on on uh, on a video call with us. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Steve, I'm looking forward. My name's Christina. 
I hope we're good friends. Let's talk about boarding school. Um, you know what else C.S. Lewis struggled with? If you ask him to play D&D with us, he might... He... Oh my goodness, let's do it. Okay, honestly though, like, our D&D game is in between my notes. That's why I have to flip so many pages. <laughs> because, like, we start D&D and this, this book is here and I would open it up and I'm like, ah, so if I start talking about... And then C.S. Lewis you know, grabbed an amulet... <laughs> and all these statues came to life and tried to kill him. And wait a minute, Bell, Galbat. Oops, sorry, that's not what we're talking about. Uh-huh. That was an inside joke, listeners. I'm sorry, you weren't on the inside of that, but we play D and D too. I mean, in quarantine, you know. all jokes are inside jokes. <laughs> oh, clever. We're so funny. Gosh. <laughs> I didn't think I was funny, but now I know I am. <laughs> I'm going to tell you more about this guy's tragic life story because this one, this one was a real blow to Keep him. Keep going. C.S. Lewis failed the driving test. Okay. Seventeen times. Really? That's a, that's that's a real number. Yeah, go look that up. Okay. <laughs> Is it because of his thumbs? Probably. <laughs> that's what he'd say. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. It's like I'm trying to imagine driving without thumbs, and the, yeah. no, he had thumbs. He just didn't think they no. worked right. Yeah. <laughs> Facts that we're learning in the podcast. C.S. Lewis famously didn't have thumbs. What? <laughs> he totally had thumbs. I never said he didn't have thumbs. I said he he felt they didn't work correctly or something like that. Like, I think it was maybe it was an excuse that he was just a bad ball player. And, but like I said, you you, you need an excuse. It feels bad to admit I'm inadequate. You know. So I'm just gonna blame my genetics. Thumbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So he failed his driving test 17 times. Yeah, apparently just, he struggled through life. But you know what uh-huh. happened? I think at around 18, he met this Kurt Patrick guy who was like, come under my wing and let me let me tutor you outside of school so you don't have to be in that horrible, loveless place. And that's where he comes out and he says like, I'm an atheist! But it's important to know that in his atheism, the atheism, he was like, I'm angry at God for creating the world the way he did. And God doesn't exist. I'm mad at him for not existing. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> the definition for atheist is is simply this. You don't believe in gods or goddesses. That's it. It doesn't mean you don't believe in life after death or any of that other stuff. You can believe all that and still be atheist. But if you're mad at God, he has to exist in order for you to be mad at him, doesn't he? So were you really an atheist <laughs> or were you an anti-theist and you just didn't know it yet? I'm going to have to call him on that. Uh-huh. But he really tried. <laughs> You know, and power to him for trying to identify himself. Far be it for me to tell him what he is and isn't. But, yeah. He then, like, I guess World War One rolled around. I bet those were fun times. Just popped up. Yeah, it just popped up suddenly yeah. and without, you know. <laughs> like Turkish Delights. Just like Turkish Delights. <laughs> it, it did. So now he's finding himself in the World War One called the Great War at the time, I suppose. And he met this guy named Patty. Spelt with two Ds. But in my notes, I wrote it with two Ts. Just wanted everyone to know. Sounds like an Irishman. He might have been. Probably was. Because, I mean, whatever. And you know what? They became really close buddies. I mean, like, bosom buddies. Friends of the forest kind of friends, you know? (laughs) And they made this pact where Patty was like, Dude, if I don't come back, Won't you take care of my family? And C.S. Lewis is like, my dad sucks, and I could really care less if he was taken care of. But man, I want you to go take care of him if I die. I mean, I'm not sure 
what the pact was, but it was take care of your family in the event we die. And you know what happened? Guess who died? Man, Patty died. Wait, C.S. Lewis died? No! Before he wrote the book? <laughs> yes, actually it's his ghost that comes back uh-huh. and writes these books. Keep up, Kristen. That's why he put C.S. Lewis in as the narrator character. Uh-huh. It was it all Patty. It is a character. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly, it solves my own problem, man. he I'm... was dead. I, was, I mean, I was going to say you've heard of ghostwriters. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's a terrible podcast. Uh, this is. Like, and again, I want to quote, I am not a historian. Hey, 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 hey. hey. You, you don't get to say that. <laughs> no, I do. Like, I don't want no, your, your listeners to take me 100%. This oh. episode. Okay. Yeah, for this, okay. don't don't quote me on this. I could be completely wrong. I could be lying out my teeth. Do not write this into a report and be like, well, Christina, <laughs> on this podcast. What? Who's Christina? Do I sound intellectual to you? I studied English. Man, don't. <laughs> Don't quote me. I could be completely wrong. I watched one documentary that definitely does not make me an expert. An expert, I am not. That's so Patty died. Patty died. Right. And so C.S. Lewis is like, oh my goodness, I gotta go back and take care of his family. And so he does. He, when, what year was that? 1918? The time of the Spanish flu? I had to throw that out. It's a tie-in. I, I was, it's kind of like a pandemic joke where I'm just like, we're in a pandemic and so was C.S. Oh. Lewis. Now we have something in common with the guy we're learning about. <laughs> he went back to this guy's mom's house and her name was Miss Moore and C.S. Lewis was 20 and she was 46 and she had a daughter named Minto and they all lived together in this house from 1919 to 1930 C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. lived in this house with this woman who wasn't his biological mm-hmm. mother and they were friends. And he called her mother. He called her mother. And they were friends. And none of and none of his friends, like his other like comrades and compatriots, asked him at any point, Are you and Mrs. Moore sleeping together? Whoa, I just <laughs> said they were friends. Didn't you see me winking? That was a sign for like yeah. they're just friends. Yeah. Just we, we briefly touched on this in uh, in the Nathan episode where he he brought it up. It's like that uh, before his kind of short lived marriage. This is like the only notable relationship he had with uh, a woman. woman. Yeah, and uh, kind of you know might have colored his opinions on certain things a lot, but like role like gender <laughs> roles and uh-huh. oh, it gets a little bit crazier than that. Do you know that C.S. Oh, keep, Lewis keep in this house? How do you think he paid for this house? Because this woman wasn't out there working and doing a whole lot of other stuff, making a whole lot of money. Nah, nah. Do you know how C.S. Lewis paid for this? We do not, know. At 20, he's still in school. And you know who's paying uh-huh. to put him through school? Daddy. His daddy paid for him to live with this woman and her daughter. And you know what? Okay. C.S. Lewis didn't want his dad to find out. He often called the woman... Uh, Miss Moore, landlady, before he started calling her mother, when it became too complex to explain to friends what was going on. It was scandalous, guys. This was scandalous. I'm talking about 1919. This unmarried young man it, up in this house with this unmarried cougar, I mean, older lady. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's a little, that's a little suspicious. Just a, just a pinch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's around... That time, you guys are right, he joins the Inklings, makes his own little his own little clique at school where he's like, guys, we're going to study Norse mythology and medieval times. It's going to be like the Renaissance Festival in a classroom up in here. So that's what he does. And 
he tries his hand at poetry because he wants to write about the Mm -hmm. war which he's like completely unaffected by that that was sarcasm i don't know if (laughs) he says he's unaffected by an acting like he's not i'm sorry you can only shoot a man so many times before you're like you know what i think this affects me just a pinch yeah, I mean, uh-huh. and he lost his good friend, and he's now, like, responsible for caring for his friend's mother. Like, yeah, mother. Like, that alone, like, even if he wasn't at, like, war, just even the loss of your friend, friend and your, yeah. Well, he writes his poetry, man, and you know what it did? Bombed. It was awful. Ain't nobody liked it. Ain't nobody liked it. I'm shocked. You should be. I'm shocked. I mean, not a lot of poets get popular. I'm not going to say that's the, you know... A mark against Lewis, like yeah, it takes a lot to, for a poet to get popular. Uh-huh. Yeah, but guys, you gotta understand, especially. he really wanted it to to succeed. Like this, this was this man's dream was to succeed at poetry. You know, uh-huh. I bet I have a good reason for it to have not succeeded. What? His thumbs were messed up. You're right. You're so right. <laughs> His thumbs probably just couldn't hold a pen or something, and so. <laughs> I don't know if he had a typewriter at that time, so maybe you're right. Maybe it was his thumbs. Okay, but in his to his credit, he tried. And you know what? He published things, and I haven't. I made this better. <laughs> He's done more than I've ever done. So, considerably. D- depending on how you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So he became an English lit teacher in, like, 1925. He made 500 euros a year. He loved the library. Bet you couldn't guess that. But see, the thing is... He, he only really liked literature. He wasn't really teaching history or science. You know, English was like a girl's major in college. Not gonna lie. It was considered very feminine. Which... Yeah, Kristen. Hey. Huh? <laughs> I'm looking up really quickly how much money that is. Uh, I like to... Uh, oh, please do. I was wondering. Throw in some math. Like, I, I... like, I'm trying to... In the English department in the college that I went to, I think that there was three women teachers mm. and the rest were all men yep. yeah yeah it, it's so. find it shocking but apparently stuttering studying literature wasn't considered all that important and so it was just kind of like oh if you're just reading yeah. books that's more like a rich woman's pastime to read a book not mm-hmm. something you need to dedicate your life to as an adult male who should be getting married and supporting his family and doing all that kind of stuff what are you doing yeah, which is which is a really quick turnaround. By the way, uh, in case somebody is curious, uh, that amount of money in 1925 is about the equivalent to 30,000 uh, pounds today. So it was a living wage. So, oh, him. You know, I ain't making that. Yeah, around there. <laughs> See, he was successful. Yeah. Uh, but no, that that is an interesting kind of cultural turnaround because you can go back, you know, 50 years in Victorian England, uh, kind of the, the tail end of Victorian England, where, you know, things like literature and education were very, very highly valued. And like you would have, uh, you know, you would have the men that were, you know, trying to be, uh, trying to be new kind of Renaissance men, and uh, multidisciplinary studies were all the rage. And like you wanted to go to symposiums, and you wanted to learn as much as possible. And so, like, to to have that change in, in a few short decades to, you know, something like literature being looked down upon, is a is a pretty large mm-hmm. shift. Yeah, and it could have just been his peer group again. And he was really deep into the mythology mm-hmm. stuff, too. I'm not saying that it isn't a necessary skill at the time. It's just, it's an mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing for a full-grown man at that time to have dedicated his life to teaching. I mean, literature's important. Shakespeare, 
all the way. I mean, he, he came up with so many words for our language, but at the end of the day, you can only do so much with an, an English degree. What can you do mm-hmm. with a BA in English? I can manage a coffee shop <laughs> until it gets shut down. That's what I can do. Uh-huh. <laughs> Completely unrelated skill set. And just taking the tone yeah. right on down. This podcast. Yeah. All right. So uh, he's an English teacher. Come on, we're we're going yep. through the whole history of his life. So let's keep let's keep trucking. We are. His dad ended up getting ill in like 1929ish. These are really rough dates, guys. Just seriously, do not quote me on this stuff. Okay, we'll try um, not to. And you know what? I don't think C.S. Lewis knew how to internalize those daddy issues very well because he went back to meet with his dad because he felt bad like oh my goodness I'm wasting daddy's money I, I don't hang out with my daddy I think he really had a lot of daddy issues and for those six weeks he was with his dad they really bonded guys they got close and they made up and you know what things were gonna get better he was gonna have a great relationship with his dad he was determined to work these things out and he went back to school for four days and then his dad died when he was away Uh wow and he came back for the funeral and do you know what he did i don't he buried all of his toys from his childhood that's a very unique thing to do now he doesn't have a journal or diary so i don't know what he was thinking but who buries all their childhood toys at the death of a parent that to me is just it says something about his psyche and i don't think he internalized this stuff well i just don't Mm. at all Hmm. i mean that's that's yeah that's a traumatic moment all these factoids that were laying yeah well i want you to get all these factoids in because Mm -hmm. like i said i compare them to the book itself and this is I will make points about the book. I promise, listeners, I'm getting back to the book. I'm, I'm a ranter. I told you I'm rambling. It's what I do. Ooh, we're getting, we're getting to a we're reveal. Getting to a reveal. Yes. I wasn't aware of that. Yes, there's a point I am making here. It doesn't sound like it. Okay. I'm going to get there. And it's not going to be very good okay. because, again, I want to repeat. I am not... I mean, the most I ever did with my English degree that was cool was I taught kindergartners in Japan how to speak English. And it didn't even have to be proper English. They just needed to be able to communicate with English speakers. That's what I do. That's all I've ever done. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, That's moving on. Three, two, one. So then we're going to... Still in that year, 29, after he buries this to- the, all these toys. Like I said, I don't think he internalized it well. Burying his toys. He's 30 years old. And he goes to the chapel at the school he works at, and he just admits, God was God. Because that's how I define words. Having read the dictionary as a kid, you know, I define words with words. You know, cat is cat. Jump is jump. (laughs) Tautologies are tautological. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There you go. Well, God is God. It, It doesn't really explain what God he's talking about exactly. It's just that there is okay. a God, and it is itself. Deep, deep philosophical okay. thoughts, guys. You've got to keep up with C.S. Lewis here. Um, <laughs> I don't, uh, I, you might need to slow down a little bit for me. <laughs> no, I'm good. Let's, I'm, I'm tracking. Okay, well then, like, in 31, he's hanging out with his good friend. What's his name? Uh, J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien? 
token yes something like some yeah some token obscure name like that and this really cool guy named hugo come on that's a great name i love this guy's name and you know they're just talking and going for a walk you know like men do in the 1931s yeah. through gardens talking about mythology i'm oh. gonna interrupt here with a with a very very little very little known fact is that uh jrr tolkien's full name was actually jolkin rolkin rolkin oh, yes but you don't you don't hear that a lot but i love it say that again for the fun uh jolkin rolkin yes. rolkin tolkien hear that listeners all of you need to learn how to say that five times fast and at your next dinner party kristen is rolling your eyes very very hard right now Oh, anyway, continue. Got to get my daily eye roll in, you know. Uh-huh. Otherwise, I'll forget how. Uh huh. Um, where was I? Oh, bless. Okay. So... He's uh, hanging out oh, with yeah, Hugo. He's hanging out with Hugo, and they're and talking, and that other guy, Jay, and they're talking about mythology because I guess that's just what they do. And then the other guy happens to mention about Christianity because they're they're lumping that in with mythology. He says. Of course it's a myth. But if it happens to be real... And I put dot, 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 because I didn't care for the rest of the quote. Because I thought that was lit. <laughs> this is very important for you to understand. Uh, C.S. Lewis began to consider Christianity truth because someone told him, of course it's a myth, but it happens to be true. Does that make sense? No. Does it have to make sense? No. you got to understand that he believes that God is God... And, of course, the Bible's a myth. It happens to be true. Let it sink in. Again, uh-huh. let that sink deep. If you want. I mean, you don't have to. You could, uh-huh. I'm really curious it. about the rest of that quote that you cut off there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was much more involved than that. <laughs> but, again, uh-huh. I was also playing Minecraft as I was watching this documentary. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there was a creeper on screen. So, you know. I just found priorities. it very interesting. Yeah, Priorities. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, here's a man who says he's an atheist whilst hating God, believing there is a God worth hating, and then turning around and just deciding it is this God that I'm hearing about because, of course, it's a myth, and I have always liked mythology. And, I mean, if you want to study Christianity's involvement with Greek mythology and how deeply intermeshed they are, I mean, in paganism as well, how just, I mean, they, they might as well just be mirrors of each other. They're so deeply involved. It's, I don't find it odd that he would have taken that quote solely on its value and said this is good enough for me to just believe it here's somebody i respect who's really smart who believes it i want to believe it i believe it and he did and so this brings us to the year uh well actually i should say during this time he also went to the zoo i think it's very important that i talk about his trip to the zoo is it yeah what happens here does he meet a lion he does he sees a lion oh. at the zoo. He sees many animals. And remember, in his childhood, he loved to Do any to of them talk to him? him? No, they don't. But it was at this trip at the zoo when he's just like, you know what? I believe in the Christian God. And it's my job to make sure that others do too. And he made this declaration in his head at the zoo. I okay. think that's worth noting because I applied at the zoo. Okay. Nice, nice. Uh, he wrote the books, The Problem of Pain... The Great Divorce, stuff like that. Some of his greatest Christian apologetic books are written during this time. It's great. And then you know what happened in 1940? Air raids. We are going into World War II. <laughs> Why are you laughing? It's like the setup for like the, the worst anti-joke ever. <laughs> I'm really so sorry. You know what happened in 1940? 
air raids. <laughs> You're right. That was an anti-joke. I apologize. Those are hilarious, though. I, y'all laughing. Y'all laugh. Aren't you laughing too, listener? Aren't you laughing? Look at me be like C.S. Lewis. I keep talking to the listener and telling them what to think. Yep. You know what mm-hmm. I want you to think, listener? Okay. I want you to think for yourself. That's what I want you to think. So there were air raids. So there's air raids. And you know what the radio people decided? England needs comfort. So you know who they put on the radio? You'll never guess. C.S. Lewis. Yeah. C.S. Lewis! How'd you know? Uh, this part I'm actually you. familiar with. And this See? kind of... Go ahead, tell us what he did on the radio. We want to hear. I oh, know. This is your thing. Go for <laughs> no, it. Go for oh, it. Chris, tell us. Yep. Tell us. Oh, my goodness. I want to hear her okay, stand so talking about it. He provides comfort to the masses by speaking about Jesus uh-huh. and the importance of Christianity. And you know what? It is comforting for people. I ain't even going to sit here and lie. It really was. As bombs are falling from the sky, it felt really nice to know that your heavenly father is up there watching over you. So it did provide a lot of comfort for people. And I feel like this is an important thing to know, because again, this is just me making speculation on C.S. Lewis. But this is super, super duper important. He got to comfort hundreds of thousands of people with something he knew was a myth, but believe it anyway. And it worked. That, that's a fact. It worked. People were, in fact, comforted. You know who wasn't comforted? Oxford. Hitler? Oh, Hitler. <laughs> Hitler wasn't comforted. I mean... <laughs> We couldn't have gotten two very different answers. <laughs> you wasn't comforted? Hitler Oxford? Oh. <laughs> Oxford wasn't comforted. His peer group was like, oh my goodness, not this this Christian stuff again. Oh my goodness, your religious views are so extreme and weird and we don't agree. Just teach stuff. So they just wanted him to kind of focus on teaching stuff and he was like, no. I'm making a club, and we're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to talk about philosophy and Socrates and all this cool stuff. And they're like, we're going to let you do it, but we're like not going to give you promotions and stuff. Because like, we're Oxford, and we're kind of being a jerk right now. Because here you are actually doing great work, and you really do know your stuff. But we're going to tell you, nah, no promotion for you, because we don't agree with your views. For shame, Oxford. They, they wow. can't see me do the tisk tisk symbol with my fingers, but I'm doing it. <laughs> So Oxford didn't approve, but eventually they kind of did just approve in a way. I mean, they were like, you're still teaching. We don't care. Let's come to the year 1948. It's a good year. It's a good year. We're speeding along. We are. We went from, like, air raids to 1948. War's over. War's over. We're done with that. Mm -hmm. And C.S. Lewis is a hero. I mean, everybody loves him. Who doesn't love C.S. Lewis, guys? Come on. Don't you love C.S. Lewis? Never met him. Well. <laughs> That's an accurate statement. Well, uh-huh. he's an apologeticist guy, so he likes to debate and do all these things. And, you know, this, this woman came to Oxford. Her name is Elizabeth Anstrom. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Forgive me. But this lady was like, hey, let's have a debate. Now, this woman is a fine Christian woman. Young, upstart, fresh to the scene, doesn't know much. And... She decides, I'm cool with this. Let's have a debate. C.S. Lewis is like, yeah, we're going to debate. We're going to debate, you know, Christianity, because this is what I do. And they get on stage, and C.S. Lewis makes an argument that you'll have to go look up, and you really should read it or whatever to get the debate. But he points out that you can't really know the truth of a thing. 
it's kind of like an argument against absolute truth. Uh-huh. Like, there's no way to really pin that down. I'm assuming it's based on his concept that you just have to have faith in things. You can't always have evidence for stuff. And Elizabeth Anstrom, a mm-hmm. fine Christian woman, points out that truth is a real thing. And she does it with this analogy, if you will. Very simple. I mean, or I'm not even sure. Just with a basic factual story. She says, if I went and stood on a scale, it would tell me my weight. And that's the truth. That's all she basically said. And you know what? Okay. It rocked C.S. Lewis's world. His whole world was rocked. Here was someone who just said, truth is a thing. And he's like, this woman, for one, it's a woman, and I'm assuming back in 1948, to be shown up by a woman in philosophy wasn't a cool thing. (laughs) His whole apologetic point that he's been making for years, go ahead and read any of his books, really was based on the importance of just faith and a lot of arguments built around accepting things as truth without necessarily having to prove them. Kind of, like, there is no absolute truth, but it's like, there is truth, right? You agree that there's truth. There's things that are true. It's like, well, yeah, but but wait a minute. It's like, yeah, that scale's going to tell you the truth. When you step on it, you weigh, you know, whatever you weigh. We don't have to talk about that number, of course, not in front of a public audience. But you're going to weigh what you weigh. That's the truth. You know who decided that they were done with apologetics and were never going to touch those again? Elizabeth Anstrom. No. Turned out it was... No. Hitler. Okay. <laughs> it was Hitler. You're right. The answer is always Hitler. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me laugh. C.S. Lewis dropped out of doing apologetics. He was done and decided it was time to try his hand at writing fiction books for children. And this is where we come mm-hmm. to the Narnia Chronicles. And I don't care about the rest of his life. I did research it. And it's actually quite interesting. You should definitely keep going into mm-hmm. his life. But now we have this period in his life where he is writing these books. Now, my question for you is, do you see any parallels in the book with his life? Go. No, I don't. Really, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he has written himself into these books as you know that like i feel like each one of the children could be argued to represent a different part of cs's cs lewis's response you know to all of this childhood trauma like these are kids who got taken away from their home they don't have access to their parents whether that's you know good or bad or it's not even touched on as far as like how they're doing like whether their parents are alive or not they just were sent away to protect them and to and in a way they're being protected from having to address or deal with the trauma of the war in the same way that c.s lewis being sent away was being protected air quotes from having to deal with the trauma of his mom dying and he was very much like put in a position where he couldn't process properly because of the removal um, from the situation. And we have these children come into Narnia and it's like, this is a myth, this is a myth. Now there's a truth, it's Aslan and there's truth and there's magic and the magic needs to be fulfilled. And then we're all gonna be kings and queens and get thrown back out of Narnia or something. Chris, yeah. give information. <laughs> Talk. Poke, poke. Give information. Do it. 
share fun facts. Um, Dance monkey. Uh huh. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's. I feel like uh, it is impossible uh, for pretty much any author to divorce themselves entirely from uh, the fiction they're writing. And I feel like if you if you go deep enough into the psyche of, of any given author, you're going to, like, you know, find some stuff that, that is very much them trying to work through things because, like, authors are all, like, horribly <laughs> depressive people who have a lot of issues. Uh, and fight me on that. Yeah. And I, I, I nope. like, the, uh, <laughs> the, the suicide rate for authors is something like 500% more than the general population. It's ridiculous. Uh... But yeah, so I, I, I think, yeah, you can definitely find things in Narnia that uh, were very much influenced by things that uh, Lewis was going through. And, uh, oh, his, I, I wanted to talk a bit about, like, his uh, his ideas on education, because I, I feel like oh, yeah. this fits in a bit here. Uh, and he was, he was really, really big into the idea of education, and he was uh, very he bristled at a lot of his contemporaries at the time because he felt like education in the state that it was in when he was teaching and when he was going through school uh, was had lost the way and lost the plot, kind of. You mean it's almost like there was a war on? Yeah. Uh, or and, a global pandemic. And he was trying to bring back very much a classical style of education where it was much more uh, personal, and I guess he felt like... Uh, like modern education was much too rote and it was about you know it was too much about the idea of testing and just like vomiting out knowledge and et cetera, et cetera. and he wanted to go back to a much more intimate kind of setting where like you had this bond between the student and teacher and like you had you know the student sitting at the feet of the master and you know kind of living and breathing what they were learning and like diving really deep into like the ethos of of whatever you're trying to figure out and that's uh where he was coming from in uh, kind of writing the Chronicles of Narnia because he wanted them to be a good story, but at the same time he wanted it to be uh, something that conveyed a truth and something that conveyed uh, knowledge of of the world in some way. And uh, that's I don't know. I think that's where a lot of the allegory comes from, and you know, some of his more transparent breaks into the story with the author is him trying to be an educator. And he's not just trying to tell a story here. He's being like, all right, I got I to gotta learn our children something. And that was very, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, we talked uh, in the wrap-up about um, Magician's Nephew about how much the character of Diggory maps onto um, C.S. Lewis's early life and fear of losing his mother and father being distant and just away and then when everything gets resolved in the end it's like yes and this other like uncle died and they have money and they have dad back and mom's healthy and everything's okay and it's this wish fulfillment for c.s lewis and that one was written later but the lion the witch in the wardrobe i think is very much just him processing out what his theology is now that he's like all right so we have this myth that's true in the same way that I'm going to write this myth of Narnia that, and, and Aslan's Jesus. <laughs> See, uh -huh. 
love it because for me having looked at his life and really gone back and looked at it i always assumed the story was yes an allegory for like the story of christ and everything it, but it, it was like why did he choose such a mythological creatures and stuff around it stuff he loved i feel like at this point in his life after he realized he couldn't do apologetics he was raised in a liberal home was taught education tried to fields like he failed at school it was that moment he came to understand that he is not as smart or as intellectual as he would like to be he's a very emotional man and for him it's like i need these stories I felt like, just like when he was a kid and he played in this fantasy world, when everything started falling apart, he wanted to run back to Narnia. He wanted to run back to a place where his mythos could be real, and he didn't have to challenge it, and he didn't have to think about it, and he didn't have to fight it. He could be in a place where it was comfortably, it was comfortably reaffirmed, and that was what Narnia was. It's more of an allegory for just his distress as someone who could not come up with a worldview that everybody around him could agree with and that made sense of what he had to go through. Wars, pandemics, because he did go through one, uh, his parents not being there, having a parent die is tragic enough for a kid, I'm sure. Not having that connection with his father, never really being able to build a healthy relationship with a peer. The fact that, yeah, if he did have a romantic relationship, it was with someone he could look at as a mother. I mean, you could talk about an Oedipus complex all day long. At the end of the day, that was, at the point of writing this book, that was the only relationship he had. You know, and maybe with Minto, he may have had a relationship too. He did have a kid who came during the air raids and stayed with them too. She was like 16 years old and he paid her way through school. And she described him as a very loving and compassionate man. I think, maybe, and I don't know about the other books, I only read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I personally feel that it is him trying to talk to you through an allegory, because that's the only way he knows how to talk, through mythos. I think the reason he didn't want the author to die in the story was not because he needed, he was actually trying to tell a story. I think he was just trying to tell a truth in the only medium he knew, and that's mythology, to the only group of people who would hear him in a, without challenging him intellectually because he just lost this really big debate so he chose children if you couldn't even convince a woman which at that time I'm sorry that's just how they thought about it maybe it was time to take a, a to step down and go kids kids will get this <laughs> that's when I got it I understood it I built my worldview as a child this is where it matters and most of us actually do we live our whole lives trying to just deal with the trauma from our childhood who we are is what we were raised with and I feel like that's where C.S. Lewis was in this probably through all three of these books. This is a man who is screaming at you, listen to my worldview, it's important, it matters, this is what I believe. It doesn't matter if it was Jesus, it doesn't matter if it was Zeus, this is what I'm trying to share with you. Mythology, symbolism matters, because it matters to me. And I feel like that's what the whole book was screaming, and I missed it the entire time I listened to it, because I just didn't. I didn't really want to hear his point of view because I'm just like, oh, it's just an, it's just it's an allegory for Jesus. He's just doing apologetics, and it's like, no, the only apologetics he's playing through this book is against himself. And I felt like it was, it makes the book a lot deeper, even though it's still a horrible. Read. <laughs> All right, I mean, that that's a that's my point. Okay. And wow. I had to go through all of that to get to that one point. I'm so sorry, listeners. No, that was solid. I mean... <laughs> At this point, you may be riding on the back of a lion thinking to yourself, at least it ain't that Christina girl talking. <laughs> God. 
could she could she draw that point out any longer? Huh? That was my whole point, though. No, it was good. People listen to us talk all the time. Like, you know, we gotta get another voice say. in there. I know it's weird. Like, people want to hear us talk. What? Huh? So when I was <laughs> in uh, when I was in college, one of the classes that I took in my English degree was called literary theory. And the professor of that class, Dr. Smith, was one of my favorite teachers. You know, we would read different theory, like different actual like people who wrote theory about literature and analysis and structure and things like that. But we also had to take some of those different theories that we were studying and like write to a couple different papers in the class where we took a specific theory that we chose in one case, two theories in another case, and analyzed a book from that theory or perspective. And these kind of things, you know, include all of this kind of Bartian idea that the death of the author and, and all of this, but also there is literary theory that's, you know, based in queer theory. There's based in feminist theory and critique. There's, you know, also these um, ideas of very Freudian uh, analyses. So there was, uh, like, for the book Jane Eyre, I wrote a Freudian analysis of that book, where the book itself was the conscious mind that I, or the, of the mind that I was analyzing, and there were different characters who represented your id, ego, and superego of the text itself. Wow. So it was like, this character is this very phallic image because Freud was all about that and is very much the super ego in this character in in this book where everything comes back to these are the rules and this is the super ego directing all of these things so for some reason um that analysis popped into my head and I've been looking at the lion the witch in the wardrobe and as you were saying, like taking it and making it this this analysis or criticism of C.S. Lewis's own development through his acceptance of his own belief system and going through that and just being like, okay, so is there a character in this book that is his belief system? And I think that it kind of is where there's like, they just show up in Narnia, they want to do the right thing and do right by Tumnus, having no idea that Aslan exists. And then they are brought in and told, no, you need to, you need to come meet Aslan. And then Aslan is never introduced until the last quarter of the book, where he suddenly becomes a character and still doesn't do anything for another two chapters before he actually does something. But anyway, I just think that that kind of, like, I don't know, I'm just having this idea of, of these characters that are representing the different positions and roles and growth of C.S. Lewis's whole philosophy. I don't know. I think that it's an important take to, to look at it in that way, and I just appreciate that there are so many different ways to analyze a book, but this is where we're kind of falling on this one because it's become it's become so obvious it almost doesn't need the analysis anymore and that's part of why i find it to be very simplistic and i'm not loving the books because i'm like oh, okay like 
even my ability to analyze this book has been hampered by how obvious the imagery is in the book. Yeah. When a writer chooses to be on the nose so heavily that you're like, wow, that character represents the skeptic. That character... It, it kind of does harken back to the times of every man. Like, even the characters are named things like every man. Like, that's his name. Pilgrim's Progress. Progress something like that. I, I think there is... There's merit to those stories. Like I said, you really have to understand where they're coming from. Otherwise, yes, they're just going to be boring and and like, okay, we got it. It's like me telling a story where I'm like, there was a squirrel outside and the squirrel symbolized freedom and happiness. It ran around freely, happily. It was free and happy. There was a bird in the sky which represents oppression and not freedom and not happiness. And the bird came and he scooped up the squirrel in its talons. It was killing the squirrel, which is the symbolism of oppression, killing freedom. Like, okay, I got it. Could you could you not? Could you just tell me the story about the squirrel dancing outside? I had to bring it back to the squirrel listener. You knew I had to. You know, couldn't I just do that? But there's no room for error <laughs> but sometimes the curtains are just blue and the squirrel is just yeah. a squirrel uh-huh people might miss they this. might uh-huh uh so uh we are kind of running a little short on on time here before we wrap up i i wanted to possibly bring up this Turkish delight thing. You really want to. Uh, no. Okay. We, when you went to the bathroom, she said we could. We it's not it. Okay, we can skip that. Because uh, I didn't do enough research to do I it. I mean, we can... I didn't. I was going to, okay. but I didn't. And then I got on this, and I got... I was like, oh my god. And then I just feel like... When I look at it, I pity this man, and I feel bad that... Like, I wish now I could re-listen to the story having had that background information, which is why I don't actually want to touch the story too much, because I feel like I'm being overcritical now. Of, of a place where this, this man is literally just screaming, I have no idea what I'm thinking. I'm trying to process as I write. And I'm like, well, I do it too. We've all been there, haven't we? You're just writing the process. <laughs> feel you. And I mean, like you said, you can't completely remove the author from the story. But yeah, where does the interpretation come in? Like when you write this kind of a story where you don't allow your reader to wander in any size, shape, form, or fashion, you are theoretically creating a cult read in which your reader doesn't have an opinion different from your own. And that's why I say it builds community as well. These are a lot of people who want to believe what they believe without mm. having to analyze it or, or come up with a logical reason behind why the myth is true. And I'm not saying that to be mean or rude or harsh to anyone, because I'm not, especially because it is such a beloved book by Christians. Lots of Christians have thought about their points of view, and they could still like this book. But at the end of the day, you do have to admit, at, to some extent, you use some form of reasoning to get where you got. What is the reasoning in this book? Check it out. Is it telling you to question and challenge? Nobody questions and challenges Aslan unless they're just evil. Well, is it possible to not be evil and question and challenge Aslan and be like, Hey, yo, you know, I'm just thinking, you doing this whole disappearing act for a really long time while this witch is running around was kind of, I don't know, selfish of you. Why didn't you come back sooner? And when you think about it, were the children even necessary to get rid of the witch? They, I mean, you bit her face off. You didn't need... I mean, there's the prophecy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a prophecy, but I'm going to be honest with you. There's people being turned See, to but stone. But the prophecy is the... That hurts. The prophecy is the embodiment of faith, though. Like... Yeah, which... 
I mean, it's it's very much a representation of the necessity of faith in a in a story that hasn't like provided. For yeah, that. but could I be on Aslan's team if I questioned why he waited for this prophecy and just didn't come back sooner? I mean, at the end, they say he isn't a tame lion. He just kind of comes and goes as he wants. Where are you going? You just put four children in charge of an entire kingdom of people who were literally turned to stone for, what, a couple hundred years? I don't really know. I, I forgot that number. But these people, they uh, could yeah, use some direction. They could use some real comfort. Where are you going? <laughs> well, aren't you a free agent? Not some children who are going to close the Yeah, schools. children who close schools, which, like I said, I'm angry with the school <laughs> system, aren't we all? I'm an anarchist at heart. But, um... <laughs> right now might not be the time where nobody knows what they're doing to tell all your educators to stop teaching your kids. And what do those te- what are they teaching you at school? Maybe they're teaching us basic arithmetic and math and stuff so that we can do I don't know and, and logic, logic and critical thinking. I mean, it's it's just very interesting. Literary yeah. analysis. Literary analysis. <laughs> Getting too meta here, Kristen. But I mean, that's that's what? one of the things I feel like. C.S. Lewis very much didn't want questioning, skepticism, reasoning to be a core value of his book. He wanted you to look at those things with scrutiny and say, I don't need those. I believe in Aslan. Well, okay, this beaver tells me Aslan's coming, don't worry. I don't see Aslan. Does it make me a bad person that I question that? I think, I mean, Christina, you and I have had a lot of off-mic discussion and um, about these themes of education and logic and these kind of challenges to those things. But is it possible if we're reading this book as a processing journal for C.S. Lewis's rediscovery of faith and, and coming to his own in that, is that something that he needed to do for himself to throw out this logic and say, well, sure, it's a myth, but it's also true. Like, no, I was taught in school that myths are myths and logic is love, but do I need to throw out that kind of logic in order to be able to understand this faith? Yeah, and yes, if you're taking my opinion of this book to be a solid viewpoint, yes, he would have to. You, You really have to throw it out in order to just believe that, of course, it's a myth, but it's real. Like, but it happens to be real. Like, you can't. I mean, the word myth literally, it implies that it's a story we made up to teach us good morals and good principles. And like I said, regardless of whether you're applying this to his Christianity or just his worldview, or if you want to separate the two, because I know a lot of people do, I mean, yeah, he would have to throw out the critical thinking to deconstruct his own worldview if he just wanted to keep believing it without a challenge. Because when Elizabeth Anstrom challenged him to say, no, some things are true. Just because someone introduces a new piece of information that's a fact, you should assimilate it into what you've got, not buckle down harder on what you've got and say, no, I refuse to acknowledge that fact you shared with me. You know, and she was a Christian woman. This wasn't somebody who's attacking him. And in fact, in her own quote, she's like, no, he, he's a great man. Like she even went back on that argument and said, I wasn't discrediting his thoughts or anything. I don't know why he's leaving apologetics. It's weird. It, it was as if he just couldn't stand somebody questioning what he had come to believe. But like I said, there was a lot going on in his life that I just don't think he internalized well. And so when it came to building his worldview, which of course is going to show up in any author's writing, he didn't have a, a strong foundation to really reason through why he believed what he believed. And he was very emotionally swayed to just kind of 
do what he did. And I, I know that's awful because I know a lot of people love C.S. Lewis and consider him a great mind. But I'm going to argue with you, he wasn't a great mind. He had a great heart. And because he wouldn't allow himself to feel things and deal with his emotions, he ended up coming up with some pretty wonky, logical inconsistencies. I think I said that nicely. Great guy. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and like I said, there's nothing wrong with loving this book. There's nothing wrong with you having your worldview. I, again, just challenge you to think about it so that you don't get a book like C.S. Lewis where people look at it and go, huh, either I agree with everything he said and I don't think about it, or I think about it just a little bit and I realize it's just kind of a poor story. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Valid. It's something. <laughs> and again, I feel like I have to point out I am not a literary master. I could be wrong. My facts could be screwed up. I totally may have missed the mark entirely of what he meant. You know, it's possible. This is just things I amused as I researched his life, not when I necessarily read the book. So what you're saying is Aslan is actually Winston Churchill? I am. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I wouldn't be wrong in saying that either. You can make a case for it because his radio broadcast that brought people comfort, some people considered him more of a comfort than Winston Churchill and said he's a better speaker and a better person on the radio. Just put him on. So so we want the kids instead of Aslan to rule us at Care Parabelle. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. So we want C.S. Lewis on that throne. Something like that. That fifth throne uh-huh. at Care Parabelle. Yeah. Uh so, Kristen, uh, is there anything else you wanted to bring up before we? Uh, no, I think we got. I mean, like down. some of the things that I really wanted to touch on were the logic and the and the education that was just from our previous discussions. But I feel like we did, we we did some impromptu analysis that actually gave me more of an appreciation for the book. And I think that this is a good way to wrap this up because I really, I really feel like I can appreciate this book in a better way than I did. At, you know, at the end of the last one where it's just like, it's a bad book. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm giving it a broken table leg from a, from a broken table. Uh-huh. Well, I, I do hope that my ramblings give you something to think about in the next book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that. for sure. The next book we're reading is um, The Horse and His Boy, and it leaves the story of the Pevensey kids. Because um, the original book order the publishing book order the first four books continue with continue through following the story of the Pevensey kids and family and friends and then there are the other two books that just pop in there and do their own thing which is the horse and its bo- and his boy and um the magician's nephew mm. And then we have the final, The Last Battle book, which brings back some of the Pevensey kids and friends. Um, So the next one we're reading is the one that kind of goes off and does its own thing. So we've read The Magician's Nephew already, and this is going to be the last one that's like its own little thing, its little side quest story. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't know. I'm a fan. It's Andrea's favorite. Yay! Of course, these books cool. are amazing upon hearing that Andrea's a fan, because everything Andrea loves is great, and now I feel awful. No, 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 no. no. She listen to this podcast? No, oh my god! I gotta, it's the best book. Let me rephrase. Let me tell you, C.S. Lewis was a complete genius. Like, okay. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, no, you're good. Yeah, 
Uh, so, Kristen, do you want to go ahead and... Uh... Close us out. I brought yeah, us in. Close. You close this out. Okay. Oh, Christina, do you want to rate and review this book? Cause oh, yeah. For, sorry, we didn't even Chris and I have both rated and reviewed it. Are you interested in, in throwing out? Uh, you can use the previously used system of the thrones at Care Paravel if you want to rank it on one to five scale, or... I give this book one squirrel out of a tree fool. Yeah. Wow. I think that's 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 pretty low. It's just a single score. Well, I mean, I, I mean, from like I said, from an analytical perspective, I give it two broken thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh-huh. Who's got two thumbs and they don't work? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> yeah, that's where we're at. So before we close, uh, Christina, do do you have anything you want to plug? Any projects you're working on that you want to get out there into the the sphere of our listenership? I mean, I'm on the internet. I'm out there. I'm watching. I see you. You've seen me, but you'll never know. And one day you may wake up, and I'm someone famous. No, I, I mean, I, I do stuff, but, like, I'm not that cool. The only things I do is, like, I'm a brony. You can go check out my brony stuff if you're a brony, too. I'm platonic over on Equestia Daily. I don't write anymore because I'm a lazy bum. Actually, no, because I'm depressed and there's, like, a pandemic, so cut me some slack. I mean, I'm not, I don't do anything. I don't feel like I've done anything that merits people looking me up. But one day I'm going to write a book, and you guys are going to love it. And it's going to be totally psychoanalyticalable. And you're going to be like, I see that woman's worldview. She told me it's all of what she's doing. She's trying to manipulate my brain. I might be a <laughs> listener. I don't know. I think you're a great listener. I want to plug the listeners. Listeners, you're great people. When you come in and you're listening to this stuff, you're amazing. And you should know that. I support you, and I support your intellectual literary journey. Yeah, that's what I want to plug. All right. None well, of that also makes want sense. To plug just... anarchy and chaos too, right? <laughs> okay, let me tell you about chaos theory. <laughs> and that's when you got to cut my mic and be like, "She's done. She's gone. We just cut her out." That's that's for uh, after podcast uh, bloopers. Uh, all right, I'm gonna go ahead and take us out now. Uh, thanks a lot for joining in and listening on this bonus episode of Chronically Narnia: Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We promise this is the last one on this book we are doing ever. This is it. Uh. And, yeah, tune in next week for our intro and first chapter of Horse and His Boy, starting a new book. We might do some new formatting stuff. It's going to be exciting. Uh, but until then, you don't can... Don't promise it's going to be exciting. You don't uh, know. <laughs> until then, you can contact us at, uh, at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can tweet at us at Chronically Pod on Twitter. And you can email us your fan art of... Man, what are we doing fan art of? We're doing fan art of the inside of C.S. Lewis's brain. I was going to say his thumbs, man. It's a fan art of C.S. Lewis's non-functional thumbs. Send that to chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. And until next week... Don't lock yourselves in any wardrobes. And don't forget to wipe your sword. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Woo. So we need bloopers now? Okay, um... <laughs> so, uh, there's, there's no wrong answer to this question, but did you also, uh, listen through our episodes on The Magician's Nephew? Wow, will you look at that squirrel outside my window? You know who wasn't comforted? 
Ah, Hitler. Oh, Hitler. <laughs> Hitler was a good one. I mean, we could have gotten two very different answers. You who wasn't comforted? Hitler Oxford? Oh. <laughs> This is the one that gets us sued by the Lewis estate. <laughs> oh my god, cut that out! Edit it out! <laughs> this is a terrible podcast. Uh, this is! Okay. Again, I want to quote, I am not a historian. Hey, 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 hey. You don't get to say that. No, I do. And yeah. that's cool, because it's okay to be wrong. And I support <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so mean. I, I do support you in a way. I mean, you are wrong, though. So it's all good. Don't don't apologize. Objectively. Okay. Objectively. Yeah. You I are feel objective. like 